0: Welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. And today, what we are going to be talking about are some electrolytes. This is key foundation knowledge that you need to understand pretty much starting off early on in your nursing school career, and then it will carry over and you will use this knowledge every time. You work, and I'm not exaggerating. So, at first glance, you might just think you just need to memorize the lab values that are normal for a particular electrolyte. And actually, the lab value range is probably the last thing that you need to know about these electrolytes. What you need to understand about each one is why it's important what its functions are in the body, the signs and symptoms of both hyper levels and hypo levels, so high and low levels, um, causes for it being too high or being too low, and then the most important thing as a nurse, what are you going to do about it? So we'll see how many we can get through. I don't want this podcast to get too long, so if we end up having to do a two-parter, we'll do a two-parter. So let's start with probably the most common one that you will be keeping an eye on for a variety of reasons, and that is potassium. So just for reference, though, I just said you don't really need to memorize this, For reference, the average range is about 3.5 to 5. Now, the reason why I say don't stress about memorizing it, I mean, you might have to for school for purposes of your exams, memorize the ranges that your professor wants you to know. Um, But just knowing generally that 3.5 to 5 is the average normal range. At some institutions, the average is 3.5 3.5 to 5.5. Where I work, we correct any potassium that's below 4. So, technically, 4 to 5 ish is what we consider normal. So, that's why I say the ranges are going to vary, but I have a general idea so that when you look at a potassium of 2.2, your alarm bells go off, right? Or a potassium of 7 or 8, your alarm bells are going to go off. But Whether it's 3.5 to 5 or 3.7 to 5.3, it's kind of six of one, half dozen of the other. It's going to vary where you work, different policies, all of that. Of course, for your exams, if you do have to know a very specific range, go by what your professor wants you to know. So what is potassium known for? It's a really big player in cardiovascular function. So that's why we want to keep such a close eye on it. It's going to be more abundant inside the cell. Um, I always remembered this. I'm very visual. And so when I was learning the electrolytes in my pathophysiology or my anatomy class, I drew a picture of a cell and I drew a whole bunch of bananas inside the cell and bananas are high in potassium. And that's how I remembered that potassium, for the most part, lives inside the cell. So what are some functions of potassium? So the first thing that you might think of is that it's really super important for muscle contraction conduction. So we're talking about cardiac muscle. That's the big one. But also skeletal and smooth muscle. I had a patient once. Whose potassium level. He had some kind of problem where he would lose his potassium. I don't know what his problem was. I think it was something in his kidneys. And um, I don't remember, it was a really long time ago, but I do remember that his K level was scary low. It was two something and um, he could barely move. And it was really scary for him, I'm sure. So aside from the fact that we were watching his heart monitor recordings like a hawk, as we're replacing his potassium, of course, he was also lying in bed and pretty much entirely immobile because he did not have enough potassium for effective skeletal muscle conduction. Another important function of potassium is that it helps metabolize carbohydrates, okay, and it's going to move glucose into the cell with insulin. So as insulin... Insulin's like the key, so it's going to unlock the cell, and then potassium hitches a ride onto the glucose and moves in. So the way I remember this was I drew a picture of a sugar molecule, and I forget what my sugar molecule looked like. It was probably very cute. But I drew a little uh, K character, and I drew it right on top of that sugar molecule And the sugar molecule was saying, thanks for the ride, sugar. And that's how I remembered that potassium hitches a ride onto glucose to go into the cell after insulin unlocks that cell. Okay, and then another important function of potassium is that it works to maintain the hydrogen ion concentration. So it's going to be a player in pH imbalances. So if you've got a patient who comes in and they are out of whack on their... ABG, and they also are out of whack with their potassium. That's going to be part of that whole big picture there. So, here are some random, I call them fun facts about potassium. So, here they are. We've got 98% of the body's potassium lives inside the cell. Remember, those bananas are inside the cell. Your potassium levels are replaced continually, every day, mainly through your diet. I want to think that avocados are high in potassium, bananas, orange juice, all very high in potassium, probably also oranges as well. Um, If your patient is NPO or diuresing a lot, then their potassium levels are going to be low and you can replace it IV or with potassium pills or really awful tasting potassium Liquid that I hear is just worse. So, if you're going to give the potassium, ask the patient. If it's a pill, ask them how they are taking big old honking horse pills because it's huge. The 20 milli equivalent potassium tablet is big. And then, if they're taking the liquid form, ask them if they've ever had it before. And if they have, it's something that they take regularly or have had it in the past. They might remember what they took it with to make it more palatable. Some people like it with a little juice. Some people like it with a little 7-Up. Just ask them. Maybe they have a preference. If not, try it with maybe some apple juice or orange juice and see if that helps. I hear it helps. It just tastes bad by itself. Okay, another fun fact. Most of the body's potassium is excreted out through the kidneys. So if your kidney functions impaired you want to make sure that your patient's potassium levels are not too high. Okay, so that's something to watch there. Some foods that are high in potassium, I think I mentioned um, avocados and bananas and orange juice, also dried fruits, molasses. Wanted to add that in there. The body needs about 40 to 60 MEQs a day. This is going to come in through your dietary sources for the most part. The kidneys are going to excrete 40 to 80 ish a day. Um, and they kind of do that regardless of what your potassium level is. So that's why people can get hypokalemic. If you're going to give potassium replacement IV, there's a few things to keep in mind. First of all, you have to give it slowly. Pushing potassium can cause immediate, like cardiac. Vfib death, they'll die. Don't do that. Um, you got to give potassium slowly. If the patient has a peripheral IV, you're, you'll give that potassium 10 milli equivalents over an hour, and that'll be in a 100 mil bag. So it's diluted pretty well, and you give it over an hour. If the patient is in the ICU and on a monitor or in the telemetry on a monitor and they have a central line, you can give it, at my hospital at least, you can give that 10 over half an hour, but you have to be watching the monitor. If they have a central line, they can get it at a higher concentration of 20 MEQs in that 100 mil bag. So that helps you replace it. A little more efficiently. And if they have a central line, it's not going to be painful. Now, peripheral potassium, remember how I said the oral solution is really gross? Some people say that it kind of like burns. Well, the IV potassium burns as well. So if you're giving it in a peripheral IV, you want to make sure that. Hopefully you're in a biggish vein, you know, you're not in a tiny little hand vein because that's not going to, it's not going to work. If you're in a biggish vein, like the AC or one of those big fire hose veins that guys have on their forearms, that would be ideal. What I always do when I'm putting potassium in peripherally, you can do one of two ways. You can just put it in by itself. Or you can get an order for potassium with lidocaine. So that would be a separate potassium replacement order that you would need to get from the MD. But usually, they'll try to start the patient on just straight potassium and see if they tolerate it. Some people do. Some people don't. To help them tolerate it, what I do is let's say the patient has IV fluids going as well. Um Instead of stopping the IV fluids and piggybacking the potassium instead, I will put those in together. I'll attach the potassium at the Y site on the IV tubing. And if you don't know what I'm talking about yet, if you're brand new, you will. Don't worry. Just remember that you can run them together. And that way you've got your potassium flowing in with your fluids and it dilutes it a little bit and makes it a little easier. But if your patient says, oh, this hurts, my arm burns, you got to stop the potassium. It's it's irritating to the vein. If it infiltrates, it can be really painful. So stop the potassium, flush that line, clear it out, and then get an order for potassium with lidocaine. And then it's like it kind of numbs it as it goes in, I guess, and nobody really ever complains at that point. So Never push IV potassium ever, ever. It's going to go in slowly over 30 minutes to an hour, depending on if they are monitored or not. Another fun fact is that if your patient has hypokalemia and also has a magnesium deficiency, that's going to potentiate the potassium being low. So let's say your patient's low in both. And let's say their K is like 3.7, it's not crazy low, or 3.5, it's not bad. You're going to, you know, your policy might be to replace to 4.0 at your facility like it is at mine. So let's say their potassium's 3.5 or 3.2, you don't see any ectopy on the monitor. And you notice that their mag is low as well, like 1.2. Maybe try giving the mag first. And then the potassium, or if you can hang them concurrently, they could, they're compatible, uh, they can go together. So get the mag in there and see if that will help the body hang on to that potassium. Now, if your potassium was too, or something scary, or you were at any level of a hypokalemia with ectopy, meaning you're having cardiac dysrhythmias, then I would give the potassium first or the potassium and the mag together The thing with MAG is that it has to go in over two hours, so it's going to take a little while. So those are, I don't know if you think that's fun, but those are my potassium fun facts for you guys. And then, so let's talk a little bit about hyperkalemia. So remember that hyper means too much. Think about a little kid going crazy or a little puppy that's very hyper. It's too much, too much potassium. So what would be the signs and the symptoms associated with that? Basically, you're looking at, on the EKG, one of the things you'll see in a hyperkalemia situation, and in some patients, the hyperkalemia has to be a rather pronounced to see this, but watch your T-waves. If they're tall and spiky, you're looking at hyperkalemia. So if you have a minute, pause this, go online, look for hyperkalemia. T-ways and you can get an idea what that looks like. You'll also probably also have a prolonged QTC with that and possibly some muscle cramping, some weakness. Remember, potassium plays a big role in muscle conduction. So the muscles are going to be affected when the levels are too high, just like they will if the levels are too low. You'll also have some diarrhea, some nausea, some hyperactive bowel sounds. Remember, it also involves smooth muscle. When that smooth muscle gets uh, excited, you're going to have the GI upset. Also, possibly some numbness, tingling, face, hands, feet. Um, You'll also see some of that with hypocalcemia. So just keep... Knowing that um, it could be either one, you want to always do a little further investigation. Your patient could be confused, could be restless, they could be anxious and irritable. I think the highest k level I've seen seven something seven 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 point eight I've never seen anything above eight, and I want to say the patient that had the K-level in the high sevens, he'd had um, some dead ischemic bowel. And as those cells lice and break open and die, basically, they release their potassium. Remember, potassium lives in the cell and release it into the bloodstream. So his K-level is high and he did not Farewell, if I recall correctly. So what's considered a critically high level of potassium? Typically above 6.4-ish. Again, this will vary by facility. But if you're taking an exam for school and it says the potassium level on your patient is 6.6, you're going to know, oh, that's high. Okay? So you got to do something about it. But first, let's talk a little bit about what could cause hyperkalemia. Um, knowing what can cause hyperkalemia can help you be on the lookout for it as you're taking care of your patients. So most commonly hyperkalemia, it's due to renal failure. Again, the kidneys are going to excrete the potassium. When they are not working well in acute or chronic renal failure, K-levels will rise. There could also be um in your patients with cancer who are undergoing chemotherapy. So remember, chemotherapy is gonna kill those rapidly dividing cells, and the cells are gonna break open. And what is gonna happen? They're gonna spill their potassium, and you're gonna be hyperkalemic. Um, you could have trauma, burns, any ischemic tissue is going to cause that as well, uh, especially the bowel. Crush injuries. So, if your patient's been down for a long time, you know, like the little old man who lives alone and he fell and his family, you know, maybe didn't come to see him until the next day and he's been down for several hours, he could have crush injury in that area of his body where he was laying and that K could then be elevated. Also, elevated in diabetic ketoacidosis have we done a podcast on diabetic ketoacidosis yet? I don't think we have. Really interesting pathophysiology. We'll have to do that at some point. I will make myself a note, but just know right now it can be elevated in diabetic ketoacidosis. Lots of electrolyte imbalances in that one. Lots of medications are going to cause your potassium levels to possibly be high. Um, A potassium sparing diuretic-like What's that one? Spironolactone. I'm probably saying it really funny, but that's one. Dejoxin, beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, even some NSAIDs can cause you to hang on to your potassium. Also, know that if your phlebotomist comes to draw your labs and they're having a really hard time and that tourniquet has been on that arm for a really long time, guess what happened to that tissue right there? Exactly. It was damaged. Some cells probably bopped open, released their potassium, and you're going to have a falsely elevated reading. So if you get a K back and it makes no sense at all, and when I say it makes no sense, A, you weren't expecting it. B, the patient doesn't have a risk factor for elevated potassium. C, they don't present with any of the signs or symptoms of somebody with an elevated potassium. You might want to redraw it, okay? A lot of times... Bad draws happen. If it doesn't make sense, you got to look at the whole picture, have it drawn again. So let's say you draw on your K-level. It comes back. It's high. You believe it because maybe your patient has those tall peaked T-waves on their EKG. So, you know, oh yeah, uh huh, makes sense. He's got hyperkalemia. What am I gonna do? So, you want to be thinking about what could be causing this, right? Is it because their kidneys aren't working? Is it because they're dehydrated? So, um, take a look at their BUN and creatinine. If the BUN is high but the creatinine is normal, they're probably dehydrated. So, they need fluids. But if their BUN is elevated and their creatinine is elevated, they have renal failure most likely. So, they're going to need some kind of intervention. Probably dialysis, especially if the K is really high. Um, If they're not already on an ECG monitor, you want to get them on one so you can watch for any cardiac dysrhythmias. Meds you can give, K-exalate, that's an oral medication. Pretty sure it also tastes terrible. And what that does is it's going to bind up that extra K and make the patient poop it out so it's great fun to give let me tell you if it's really high dangerously high then you're going to give the patient a combination of insulin and glucose so that might seem really strange why would you give insulin and give glucose well think about it what does insulin do to the cell it unlocks it right it's like the key to unlock that cell why do we need the glucose well two reasons we don't want the patient to become hypoglycemic because that's a whole other set of problems. We also need a transporter. Remember, thanks for the ride, sugar. Potassium's going to hit your ride on that sugar molecule and move into the cell. So insulin plus glucose given when they're hyperkalemic. You can also give bicarb to correct a pH imbalance. I kind of see a little bit less bicarb pushes done in a crashing patient. Absolutely, we'll push some bicarb. Um, I don't really see as many bicarb drips as I used to, but sometimes you'll see bicarb drips. I think in a hyperkalemic situation, it'd probably be more of a bicarb push, but then you can overcorrect and blah blah blah. So um, just keep a keep an ear out for hearing about how bicarbonate is used. You will probably also give some calcium. Now, calcium is not going to do a darn thing for your potassium level. Just so you know, what it will do is provide some cardiac protection to the heart, so that it's not quite as irritated as it would be with just that high potassium working all on its own. So the calcium kind of chills the heart out a little bit, so to speak, so that it's not quite as prone to have problems when the K levels are high. And then um, you can give dialysis if someone's unresponsive to treatment or showing signs of um, a life-threatening complication. So some places will give albuterol. I've seen that. I think that also helps shift potassium into the cell. Insulin glucose is probably the most common with the calcium, the k Um, So there's a bunch of different things that you can do for hyperkalemia, and they work. Um, so you want to just keep a close eye on their K-levels. Make sure you don't overcorrect. You don't want them to then become hypokalemic. And then um, if they do have an ongoing problem like renal failure or whatever it is, or a crush injury that you're treating that and keeping an eye on their ticker. Watch that EKG, do a 12 lead, all of that stuff. Okay, so that was hyperkalemia. Now we have hypokalemia. And remember hypo is it's too low. Okay, so if you're new to all of this stuff, hypo, low, it rhymes. So there you go. Easy. Potassium level less than 3.5-ish, you know, obviously depending on your facility, blah, 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 but less than 3.5 is a general blanket rule. Um, Oh my gosh, levels at less than 2.5, you want to hustle and fix it. So some of the things that you'll see with your patient who's hypokalemic, again, think about that patient I told you about earlier, he's got the muscle weakness and that's just due to decreased impulse conduction, okay, so not able to move very well, some nausea and vomiting because they now have a little bit of an ileus happening in their GI tract. That smooth muscle isn't working. Things are just sitting there. They're going to come right back up. They'll be constipated. When you're looking at your EKG, the ST will be depressed. Your T wave could be flat, maybe a little inverted. Your Q wave could be big. And on top of the QT. So this is really interesting. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry. Come back and listen to this again after you've taken an EKG class or gone to that lecture in your advanced med surge. But that big old Q wave that's on top of the T wave is going to make it look like your QT interval is crazy long. So I just learned this. Okay, I've been a nurse for like six years now, not a terribly long time. And honestly, guys, I just learned this in the past year, which is sometimes I'm amazed at what I didn't know. And then I think, what do I still not know, right? So um, I called the doc because I was concerned about my patient's QT interval being so long. It was scary long. So um, one of the things we worry about with the prolonged QT interval is just um, like the patient going into very dangerous cardiac dysrhythmia is just at the drop of a hat. So I called on that and he said, oh, don't worry about it. And then when I got the lab results back, I saw that his K was low. It was low. It was pretty low. It was in the twos. It was maybe two eight, two nine. And and then I did a little background research and I figured it out. And I thought, oh my gosh, that makes perfect sense. Okay, so And then I felt silly. But you know what? If you're concerned about your patient, you call And maybe you'll learn something. Okay. Or you'll help your patient. So it's a win-win-win. All right. So you'll have some changes on the EKG. Also, some decreased deep tendon reflexes. And decreased LOC, confusion, drowsiness. So those would be some of the main signs that you'll see with hypokalemia. And also, again, knowing what can cause hypokalemia can help clue you in to who you need to keep a closer eye on. So let's say your patient is dumping urine. You go in there every hour to drain that Foley bag, and there's 500 mils of urine in there. Five, 600 mils of urine. They are auto-diuresing, right? We pumped them full of fluids a couple days ago because they were septic, and now they're doing better. Their kidneys are profuse, and they are auto-diuresing, meaning they are automatically diuresing off that fluid. You concerned about their potassium levels? You probably should be. Look at your morning labs, see where you're at. If you're really dumping a lot of urine and your K-level wasn't optimal to begin with, personally, I would want to recheck it again midday and not wait till the next morning. How about if your patient has excessive GI output? tons of diarrhea. You've got um, the NG to low wall suction and those canisters are filling up. Um, They have an ostomy with very high output. They chronically use laxatives or enemas, any kind of massive GI output. Think about them losing their K. You want to watch for hypokalemia. What about if your patient's taking certain medications? So Lasix, huge culprit for hypokalemia. That's a, a potassium-wasting diuretic. So Lasix, big culprit. Steroids, theophylline. We don't use theophylline that much. I've given it once in my whole nursing career to a very, very resistant asthma patient. And I don't know if it helped him, but when I came back to work, he was better. So maybe it did. Also, um, beta-adrenergic agonists. That's hard to say. Beta-adrenergic agonists. There we go. Also, other causes for hypokalemia are a decreased potassium intake. So you've got a patient, and they come in, and they've been on a super low-carb diet. So they're not eating bananas. They're not eating vegetables. They're not eating, uh, having any orange juice. Their K-level could be low if they do that long enough. So you want to watch for decreased potassium intake. Um, People who are malnourished, a lot of alcoholics don't eat. Sadly, they drink their calories and don't eat. So you'll often see malnourished alcoholics very off on their electrolytes, very low on their essential vitamins. Also, people with anorexia, again, malnourished, Um, maybe your patient's been on chemotherapy and not eating and also vomiting a lot, you know, so just keeping kind of an ear to people that might be at risk for this. So um, those would be kind of the main reasons for some hypokalemia. And then always, what are you going to do about it? We're going to replace potassium. So I talked to you earlier about how slow you give it and all of that. So it's going to be IV infusion or PO potassium pill or the awful tasting liquid stuff. So my advice is if you're giving them the PO pill or the liquid stuff, give it with their meal or with the substantial snack because it can cause GI upset Again, with the IV infusion, 10 milliequivalents per hour, um, up to 20 MEQs per hour if they're monitored like in an ICU and they have a central line. You're going to give with lidocaine if you can because it does burn during infusion IV. Watch that site, that IV site really closely, guys, for infiltration. Um, If that skin gets infiltrated with potassium, it's it's caustic. I mean, it burns for reasons. So keep a very close eye. If your patient complains of pain at that IV site, you take them seriously. You stop that infusion. You check the patency of your IV. If there's any question, if that IV is not working, you take it out, you start a new one and you get the lidocaine version. Okay. Be nice. You're going to watch the EKG for changes. You know um, that. Flat inverted T wave, that enlarged Q wave that makes that QT interval look really long, and your ST depression. Those are things to watch with the hypokalemia. And then you'll monitor your I's and O's very carefully. Um, Diuresis is going to potentiate that hypokalemia. So how do you guys feel about potassium? That's awesome. It's really interesting. Electrolyte. That's when you know you're a total nerd, right? When you find electrolytes. Really interesting. Okay, let's do, I think we have time to do one more. So let's do calcium. Actually, yeah, let's do calcium. Calcium's great. Okay, so calcium is a positively charged ion. It is the most abundant mineral in the body. Did you know that? It works in conjunction with MAG and FOS, so if you're watching your calcium levels, you want to watch your MAG and FOS levels as well. General rule of thumb for normal level, 8.5 to 10-ish, okay? 8.5 to 10-ish. Three important functions of calcium, guys. So calcium, you already know this, but a reminder, it is the major building block in teeth and bones, it's a very key player in cardiac muscle depolarization. Remember, we talked about it earlier in relation to the hyperkalemia. Calcium also plays a role in the old ticker. And it is required for nerve impulse transmission. If you remember from your A&P class, the whole, um, whole pathophysiology, not pathophysiology, the whole physiology about how muscle conduction works, calcium played a big role in that. So let's talk about some calcium fun facts. It has an inverse relationship with its buddy phosphorus. So if one goes up, the other is going to go down. So here's a little tip for you. A lot of nursing school exams and collect style questions are going to be asking you a question about hypocalcemia or hypercalcemia, but the case they will present will be talking about The FOSS level. And as long as you know that the FOSS level is inverse to the calcium level, you can answer the question. It's a total trick. It's a common one, but now you're onto it and it's not going to get you. Most of the body's calcium is found in the bones and teeth. The rest you'll find in the plasma and the ECF. Okay, now here's where it gets slightly confusing calcium in the body is in two forms there's bound calcium and Unbound, also called free calcium, also called ionized calcium. So, two forms, a bunch of different names. Bound calcium is going to be joined up with albumin. Albumin is a big protein molecule. Well, the unbound calcium is not. The unbound calcium, again, also referred to as free calcium or ionized calcium. You only care about the free, unbound, ionized form. It's the only form that's physiologically relevant. So let's say you have a serum calcium level, which is going to be your total calcium, and you need to know what is the free calcium. You're going to perform a little calculation called the corrected calcium, and that helps you. Determine what the physiologically relevant calcium level is. Especially important in patients with low albumin levels. So, we'll talk about that at the end. Know that it's coming. You might want to get a pen and paper. If you've got an ABG, a blood gas, it's going to show you your ionized calcium. Yay! already done for you, no math involved. Okay, calcium, along with its buddy magnesium, is going to play a big role in muscle contraction and nerve impulse conduction. It also plays a big role in regulating blood pressure. It can be a pretty potent vasoconstrictor. Good sources of calcium dietary-wise include dairy, Not a big fan myself of dairy, but I just had to put that out there because it will be on your exams. Salmon. Now, that's a good one. Cauliflower, a total favorite of mine. Remind me at the end, I'll tell you guys how to make the best cauliflower ever. And dark leafy greens. So really great sources there for some calcium. And if people say, oh, I need to have my dairy for my calcium, you can say, "Uh uh-uh, eat your greens, girl, and then you'll be right, okay? And that'll be a lot healthier for them. Okay, so box stepping off. Calcium absorption takes place mainly in the ileum, duodenum, and jejunum. Okay, so let's talk about hypercalcemia. Remember, hyper, too much. So this is going to be a calcium level above that 10-ish range. And then what you'll have with that is some nausea, some vomiting, Probably decreased appetite, right? The tummy's not going to feel good. They'll have some decreased deep tendon reflexes, some muscle weakness, and lethargy. Okay, there can be confusion and blurred vision. So a little uh, neurological thing there. They could be constipated and have an ileus. So be very mindful of that. They could also have some cardiac arrhythmias. Mainly, what you'll be seeing with hypercalcemia is bradycardia and probably a shorter QT interval than you're used to. And if your levels get up in like the 12 ish range, you could have cardiac arrest. So, you want to take calcium levels seriously. Some common causes of hypercalcemia um, simply taking in way more than the body needs and on a dietary basis. I don't know that I've ever seen this. Usually our patients come to us and they're low on their calcium, but anything's possible, right? They could have um, cancer, lymphoma, multiple myeloma, some tumors, end-stage renal disease. Again, just a lot of times with any renal disease, you're going to have out-of-whack electrolytes, so something to watch for. Osteoporosis or any conditions where the bone is breaking down and calcium is released. Even bone fractures can cause elevated calcium levels. Hypophosphatemia. Okay, so low phos level, high calcium level. Someone that takes a lot of, I can't even say this word, aluminum containing antacids. They take a lot of them for a really long time. Calcium levels can go up too much. The use of lithium and thiazide diuretics can cause hypercalcemia, and so can adrenal insufficiency and or hyperparathyroidism. So you're an awesome nurse. Your patient has hypercalcemia. They're symptomatic. You got to do something about this. So what do you do? The first thing you want to do is identify and treat the underlying cause. You will want to try to increase the calcium excretion via the urine, so you can give IV fluids. You might give IV fluids with a diuretic, a loop diuretic like Lasix. You definitely want them on the EKG, and you definitely want to keep an eye on their neuro status. If their calcium levels scary high, you can give IV Fos. Remember. Get their phosphate level up. What's going to happen to their calcium level is going to come down. You can give IV calcitonin as well. And you want to treat all the associated symptoms, the nausea, if there's bone pain, if there's constipation, you will treat those things. Now, what if your patient is hypocalcemic, hypo too low? So let's say their calcium level is less than eight and a half serum calcium. They could have um, some muscle spasms with that, some paresthesia, hands and lips, like feeling like their hands and lips are numb. This totally happened to my friend, Pam. Hi, Pam, if you're listening. And we, okay, this was not a good thing to do, but in college, the first time I went to college when we were young and kind of not the brightest, we would... um, Donate blood for money, and I guess maybe she did it a little too much. And we were out to dinner one night, and her hands were like—I don't know—it was the most bizarre thing. I really think she, her electrolytes were all out of whack. Her hands were like in this claw, and she couldn't move them. And she said her lips were numb. So anyway, she felt better after she ate a little bit. Um, so other signs of hypocalcemia—you could have chopstick sign or trousseau sign. And if you need a reminder about what those are, Chavstex sign is going to be that muscle spasm of the face when that facial nerve is tapped. And then Trousseau sign is you put the blood pressure cuff on and you pump it up and they have that carpal spasm um, when that blood pressure cuff is on and blocking the blood flow. So, and then, lastly, they could also have um, cardiac arrhythmias, including heart blocks, which are really scary. V fib, even more scary, or torsades de pointes, which is a very interesting kind of um, V fib arrest, which you'll learn more about as you get further along and take your advanced med surge if you haven't already. They could also have diarrhea and some osteoporosis. So what are some common causes of hypocalcemia? So a lot of times it's due to renal failure, due to um, the body not excreting phosphorus as it should, and then your phos levels are too high, and now your calcium levels are too low. Very good. Um, if your patient has a parathyroidectomy or hypoparathyroidism, their calcium levels are likely to be low. Excessive diarrhea. Um, anyone with a low mag level, can lead to having decreased parathyroid hormone, which leads to low calcium. You could also have a patient with multiple blood transfusions that include citrate. Citrate binds to calcium. Okay, it's going to bind it up. And vitamin D deficiency would be another common cause of hypocalcemia. What are you going to do about this? You are going to identify and treat the underlying cause. Okay, very good. That's pretty common across the board. You can give IV calcium gluconate if the levels are low. And you'll give it slowly-ish, not as slowly as potassium. But don't just push it. Their blood pressure will do crazy things and it probably doesn't make their heart too happy. Like 10 to 15 minutes, you're going to give that. You will give with magnesium if also low. And you want to monitor the hypocalcemic patient for things like laryngospasm, strider, cardiac arrhythmias. So keep a very close eye on them. If you're following their levels, you want to probably draw every four to six hours, you know, get another chemistry level. And if it's not critically low, you can replace calcium via some oral supplements along with vitamin D after they eat their meals. So those are the key facts for hypercalcemia and hypocalcemia. And let's see. So I was supposed to remind you guys how to make the best cauliflower ever. So I did not used to be a cauliflower fan, but I totally am now. So you take your cauliflower and just chop it up like you normally do. Put it in a bowl, drizzle a little olive oil, a little salt, pepper. That's it. Okay. Okay. The key to the cauliflower is how you cook it. You're going to cook the snot out of this cauliflower, guys. I set my oven to 425. I put it in, and I wait until it's got, like, little brownish parts on it. I mean, it is roasted. It is so good, you guys. It tastes like french fries. I am not kidding. So I try not to eat a lot of french fries. I almost don't need to because of the cauliflower. And I know you're going to make a face when I say this, but if you dip it in a little ketchup... OMG, it is so, so good. So I think that will do it for us for electrolytes. So we covered potassium and calcium. Very exciting. We'll come back. We'll do a two-parter. We might actually have to do a three-parter. So to get all the all of them in there. So if you like this type of review, I invite you to go to the website straighta.nursingstudent.com, go to the shop section and then in there you'll see a little click that says something like electrolyte reference sheets that'll rock your world or something, you know, hyperbolic like that. Click on that. It takes you to this resource sheet that I made of the whole set of calcium, potassium, phosph, Mag, sodium. I know there's another one I'm forgetting in there. It's $9.99. It is awesome, you guys. It is one of the best things that I've made. It's also available in my Etsy shop if you're into shopping on Etsy. And then make sure you check out the Straight A Nursing website for... Let's see. What are we talking about this week on the blog? Let me just tell you guys real quick. I think next week it's about how to rock your fourth semester preceptorship. So that'll be at the end of August 2017 if you're listening to this in real time. Okay, guys. Thank you so much. Have a fantastic day. I hope you learned a lot and maybe got a little exercise or some me time in while you were listening to this. All right. Take care, everybody. This podcast is brought to you by straighta Copyright Mo Media.